Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, y'all. Good evening and good night. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Sleep Stories. I'm Brandon, and I'll be your bedtime guru for the night. I'm hoping that I can at least double your usual 40 winks tonight. If you're new to the show, I'll start off by giving you some tips to help bring you down and calm you, then slowly read a chapter or two from a very old book with some peaceful background music or noises, then let that music fade to total audio blackout. Any ads or sponsorships will only happen before the relaxation begins, so your sleep will not be interrupted. If you're a fan of true crime, Check out my other show, Music City 911. But wait until tomorrow to do that. Let's make sure you're all set up for a great night's sleep. If you're listening on YouTube or a podcast app, turn off the setting for autoplay so you won't be woke by other sounds once the episode is over. Set the temperature in your house to the most comfortable for you. If you like sleeping with a fan on, turn it to your most desirable setting. Turn all your lights out. Turn your TV off. Make sure your room and surroundings are as silent as you can make them. Now crawl into bed. Make sure you're using your covers and pillow in the most comfy way possible. Now to start. Rid yourself of all your thoughts from the day. Anything bad or good that you have had happen during the day, let those fade away and instead concentrate only on these relaxation instructions. If you still have thoughts in your head, repeat slowly over and over for 10 seconds. Don't think. Don't think. Don't think. Now close your eyes. Take a breath in and slowly exhale. Let those previous thoughts leave your body as you exhale. Imagine yourself in the most calming and serene environment possible. Calm your body. Relax every part. 
I want you to start shutting down each part of your body from top to bottom. The top of your head and your forehead. Relax those muscles. Let yourself feel them change from tense to relaxed. Relax your eyes. Do the same with your cheeks. Feel them fall as the tension leaves them. Now relax your jaw. Let your teeth slightly separate as you do this. Now let your shoulders drop as low as possible. And while doing that, let your arms, hands, and fingers all relax and loosen. Take another breath and think about your chest calming as you exhale slowly. Now relax your stomach, your legs, your knees, and your feet all the way down to your toes. Now that you're ready for sleep, let's listen to another selection from the 1902 book, The Mighty Deep. Chapter 7 Over the great deep of blue water lies the greater deep of blue air. And between these two, the ocean of air and the ocean of water, both dragged earthward by the perpetual pull of gravitation. Endless intercourse takes place. Each finds its way in small fragments into the other. There is always water present in the air. There is always air present in the water. Perhaps the latter fact is not so widely recognized as the former, yet it is equally true. Seawater contains large supplies of dissolved gases absorbed by the ocean surface from the atmosphere and passed on into lower depths for the use of creatures living there. But the presence of water and air is known to us all. When we casually remark, what a damp day it is, we mean, what an amount of water today is in the atmosphere. Water vapor, drawn up from the ocean's broad bosom, is carried far and wide on the wings of the wind to fall as rain were needed, and drying winds, in their turn, pass over regions where much rain has fallen to bear away superfluous moisture. A good deal was said in the last chapter about oceanic currents and mention was made of winds as their chief cause. That the power of wind over water is great. Anybody may know who has watched the lashing of the ocean into fury by a gale. But the degree of that power was scarcely grasped until within the last few years. Rivers and streams in the sea were long ascribed to any cause except the most weighty of all, 
no one supposed the immense current producing force to be that of wind. Not of mere local breezes or gales here or there, but of constant strong winds which prevail month after month over wide ocean districts. When a storm wind pours up a narrowing gulf where the sea has no outlet, it often piles the water up in extraordinary manner. Hurricanes have been known to turn the entire gulf stream for a while out of its course and even to force the waters back so it was actually to reverse the current. Once the volume of water, thus checked by a terrific gale, was heaped up some 30 feet above proper level, which of course caused a fearful delusion of the land. The above words had not been long written. One papers told us of the awful hurricane of September 1900 in U.S. Texas. A deep cyclone passed over the devoted town of Galveston. The direction of the wind suddenly changing as the center of the cyclone went by and the heaped up waters from either side coming together poured their united volume over the land. There was a flood which turned the city into a raging sea. Buildings were leveled. Houses fell like packs of cards. Vessels were carried miles inland. Men and women perished by thousands. When the lessening wind allowed the waters to retire, an inch-deep layer of slime was found over everything. Such facts as these help to show how vast is the power of moving air over the ocean. As a strong wind blows, the upper layer of water slips long in obedience to its push, and fresh lower surfaces are barred to the same influence. Also, the movement of the upper layer tends to drag on the layer just below, which again affects the lower one still. But influence thus exerted and passed from one to another, the result of a long-continued wind pressure in one direction is to set going powerful streams, which in the first instance were due chiefly or only to wind. Round the earth, where fairly open sea permits them to develop, are two wide belts of very persistent winds, the trades, which remain practically the same all year round, only shifting their limits within the changing seasons. They blow from the northeast and from the southeast, slanting towards the equator. So, speaking roughly, they are easterly winds traveling to the west. As a consequence of their steady pressure, we have the great equatorial current of the tropics, pouring from east to west in two halves, north and south of the equator. This vast ocean river, started and kept going by the trade winds, has been described in the more important part of its course as a magnificent surface current of hot water, 4,000 miles long by 450 broad 
moving at an average rate of 30 miles a day. And, it may be added, at least over 600 feet in depth. Between the trade wind belts is a belt of dead calms, known to sailors as the doldrums. This belt divides into the equatorial current, and in it is found the inevitable countercurrent mentioned earlier, flowing from west to east. Another belt of steadfast winds is that of roaring forties, and the southern ocean, a wide stretch of all but landless sea between 40 degrees and 50 degrees south latitude. These brave west winds, as they are called, being again the reverse of the easterly trades, blow all year round, and nearly all the world round, since only the southern extremity of South America interferes with them. They too give birth to a powerful current flowing from west to east, and this mighty stream, almost encircling the earth, has a mission to fulfill. Already, it has been said that each lesser ocean in the world has its own separate circulation system. This southern stream, with the roaring forties for its parent, has for its special task to unite all the smaller systems into one. It has to refuse to the minor oceans a lonely and self-absorbed policy and to insist on the great truth of a worldwide ocean unity. It has to carry gifts from the Pacific to the Atlantic, from the Atlantic to the Indian, and from the Indian to the Pacific again. It has to dispatch streams northward into more distant regions with messages of goodwill to all. Is this something imaginative? Well, be it so. The facts are scientifically true. Suggested meanings, gathered therefrom, may be accepted or rejected, according to the reader's pleasure. We see, at all events, that from the vast drift currents of the ocean, born of the winds, spring the grandchildren of the winds, such powerful rivers as the Gulf Stream and the Black Stream. They, in their turn, giving birth to an infinite number of lesser currents, great-grandchildren of the winds, one and all taking their share in a worldwide circulation of ocean waters. The southern belt of westerly winds, with its resulting westerly current, would be repeated in the northern hemisphere, but for the presence of great masses of land. Continents work havoc with schemes of ocean circulation. That westerly winds do greatly prevail in corresponding latitudes to the north is a well-known fact, though we cannot boast the possession of anything like the Roaring Forties. No broad belts of unchanging air currents can exist in the neighborhood of so much land, for the counter-influences are too many. From steadfast wind belts giving birth to steadfast ocean streams, we pass naturally to the fitful storms, which last the ocean 
into passing passions and to the uncertain breezes of temperate climes. There are currents and countercurrents, breezes and contrary breezes, winds from the north and south and east and west over the whole earth. Each separate movement of air helps to stir the waters of the sea into renewed restlessness. Though few things are more wonderful than the vast rivers of air and water pouring always in the same direction, century after century, they are perhaps less impressive from a man's point of view than many a mere whirling eddy which flings itself along, rousing a huge flurry of water and soon dying out of existence. A man cannot grasp as a whole the trades or the roaring forties with their companion ocean rivers. Practically, he knows only that little portion of each which happens to be near his ship. If he is overtaken by a hurricane, the whole life of which is compressed into a few miles of space and a few hours of time, he feels a greater awe. Small wonder that he should. Those impetuous and short-lived eddies are terrible in their fury. Their winds blow with a fierceness never approached by the stiffest trade. A hurricane tearing over Earth's surface at a rate of 120 miles an hour reduces the most muscular of men to helplessness. Nonetheless, such a hurricane is in itself a mere accident a mere passing incident, a mere swirl of air coming into being to adjust a lost balance and vanishing so soon as its work is done. We have seen tiny swirls of air dancing along the road on a windy day, sweeping up bits of straw or dried leaves into their embrace. Such little swirls are hurricanes in miniature the real thing levels forests, wrecks towns, lashes the ocean and the mountainous heights of water, sinks gallant ships, destroys human lives. Yet the little swirl and the hurricane are closely akin. Only in recent years has the circular, more strictly the oval, shape of a hurricane become known. It may be described as a revolving eddy of air, the winds pouring in a corkscrew-like fashion around the center, inwards from without, and upwards from within. Another kind of air eddy, called an anticyclone, gyrates just the other way, downward and outward. This usually brings light winds and dry weather instead of storms and rain. One might imagine that in the center of a wild cyclone, a ship could find safety because there calm rains. But the furious whirl of winds all around raises tumultuous billows, and towards the center, although the winds themselves die down, the state of the sea is a perfect chaos of tempestuous waves converging from all sides. Sailors strive their utmost to avoid 
that central chaos. Chapter 8 An Ocean of Azure Not that the ocean is always and everywhere blue. In a certain arm of the sea, the Bristol Channel, it is commonly any tint that you please rather than blue. Brown, green, yellow, chocolate, only not the color that we love. If by chance it dawns a few hours, a robe of azure, that robe is merely a passing loan from the sky. And in dull weather, it can only be described as a huge puddle of muddy liquid. People often grow to like best that to which they are accustomed. A lady who had spent most of her life on the borders of that brown channel once assured me that she infinitely preferred it to the deep blue sea. She had been to stay by the latter and found its monotony of tent so uninteresting that she was charmed to get back to her old friend. Tastes differ, certainly. Not many would agree with her. Yet it is a fact that the great Turner went to the Bristol Channel with all its mud for many of his marvelous sea and cloud effects. Deeply, darkly, beautifully blue, sang Byron of the ocean, and he sang truly, even though the ocean itself Putting aside the Bristol Channel is not always and uniformly azure. Near land, the tent is often greenish. Sometimes it is pure green. Often it is a pale and watery blue. At other times, we have a laden gray. The genuine ocean blue, which resembles nothing else on earth, can seldom be enjoyed till one gets on really deep water far from land or till one is looking at the Mediterranean. Why should the sea be blue? And why should the sky be blue? For matter of that, why should anything be blue? What do we mean by color? Whether blue or green, red or yellow? We mean that particular tint or sensation which the object in question causes us to see or feel. The object receives sunlight and reflects into our eyes. And since sunlight is white or yellowish white, one might expect that everything we look upon would appear to us white or yellowish white. But everything does not. And the reason is that ray of sunlight is really a bundle of lesser rays each of which has its own color. If a ray of light is made to pass through its prism, these lesser sub-rays are spread out upon wall or floor, always in the same order, from violet at one end to red at the other end. Light is believed to be due to enormous numbers of most minute wavelets, and for each color, the wavelets have a definite but different size. They are smallest at the violet end and largest at the red end. 
Now when a ray of sunlight falls upon anything, leaf or flower, earth or water, some of the sub-rays are absorbed or taken in, and some are rejected or refused admission. A healthy leaf, for instance, absorbs the red, the yellow, the blue, the violet, and refuses the green, which is therefore thrown back from the leaf surface to our eyes, making it green to us. A ripe tomato absorbs the yellow and green, the blue and violet, and reflects the red. A lump of black lead absorbs greedily all the rays, reflecting none, and so do our eyes. It is black or without color. The petals of a white rose, on the contrary, absorb so little color of any kind that practically the entire ray is sent again to us as white light. If this is the manner in which the ocean is blue, it means seawater, and indeed water generally, must in itself be actually blue, as a cake of ultramarine, a sapphire, a cornflower, a forget-me-not, are blue. Could that be the case? For a long while, men decisively answered, no. Everybody knew that water was colorless, so the idea was flung aside as impossible. Another explanation came up instead. The sea is full of fine dust, and it was suggested that, as vast multitudes of these floating dust particles are exceedingly small, they might be able to reflect only the smaller blue light waves and not the larger yellow or still larger red waves. Thus the sea would naturally seem to be blue. After much discussion, careful experiments were made. Different objects were lowered to various depths and the effect upon their coloring was noted. The outcome of these and other tests went far to prove that the old certainty was wrong and that water is in itself blue. Somebody might feel inclined to protest. Water blue? But that is out of the question. I have good sight and I assure you there isn't the least sign of color in water. Not the faintest. If you dip a bucket in the sea you will see for yourself. Yet all the while, the color may be there, actually existed, though not be detected by your eyes or mine in a pale fool. A short time ago, I had to buy a piece of lace, and my intention was to choose a pale straw or deep green. The lace was wound in many folds around a large cardboard, and it seemed to be exactly the right hue a rich yellow cream, almost butter color. Without further demur, I ordered about a yard to be cut off. On reaching home, I found myself in possession of a piece of wide, dead white lace, or all but dead white. It was actually very pale cream, and when a great many folds lay over one another, the combined effect was rich and yellow. 
but a single thickness of the material showed no coloring. The same may be seen with a single piece of very blue muslin. It will appear to be white, but yards upon yards of the same, folded together, will become quite a deep blue. A single thin layer of ocean water, in like manner, has too faint a hue to be visible to ordinary eyesight. It is only when layers are piled upon layers that the blue becomes distinct, and the deeper the water, the deeper generally will be the color. Some yards of water thickness may be said to correspond to a single thickness of lace or muslin. While, however, we may say with tolerable confidence that the blue of the ocean is a true blue, this alone will not explain all the varieties of tinting seen at different times and in different places. Seawater is sometimes a rich, profound blue, and sometimes a pale, sickly blue. It is sometimes dull, sometimes brilliant. It is sometimes green, and sometimes almost black. For these variations, even while accepting the new explanation, it has been found needful to revert to the old theory in quest of added help. The sea is blue, because it really and truly is blue. But that is not all. It is a deeper or less blue, a duller or brighter blue, a greenish blue, or even a dull yellow, because of the vast supplies of dust floating in it. The Mediterranean was particularly examined on account of its remarkable depth and brilliancy of coloring, and it was found to be exceptionally laden with dust, both fine and coarse brought from land by innumerable rivers and also pounded by breaking waves on the long surrounding coastlines. Such floating particles, at all events the bigger ones, are no longer supposed, as once they were, to reflect the only tiny blue light waves. On the contrary, they are believed to reflect all the waves of light indiscriminately, whether small or large while the sea, by virtue of its own power as a blue material, captures all those reflected waves, except the blue, and allows the latter only to reach our eyes. Near British shores, the water often has a strongly green tint, and this may be due in part to floating particles of sand. The yellow of the sand, combining with the blue of the water, would naturally form green. Possibly also the sea, near shore, is sometimes affected in color by floating seaweeds, green-tinted. The blue of the sky is often reflected on the sea surface, and sometimes so powerfully as to overcome the real ocean color. One hardly understands how intense such a sky reflection may be until one has watched the whole sea transform into glowing crimson or gold from a radiant sunset. Much the same perplexity has been felt about the blue color of air as about the blue color of the ocean, 
and much the same course of explanation has been followed. Its blueness was long maintained to be due only or mainly to the scattering of sunlight by infinite numbers of floating dust specks, which also served to account for the golden and crimson tints of sunset. It now appears that oxygen, an important element in the atmosphere, has a faint blue tint of its own, like water, which at least helps to answer for the blue of the air. We may therefore say of water that is believed to be transparently and intrinsically blue, and that its color, though not actually due to floating specks of dust or other impurities, is a great deal affected by them. Such materials in the ocean help to modify its coloring, sometimes deepening it, sometimes adding to its brilliance, sometimes deadening its brilliance, sometimes turning it green or yellow. Careful observation has also shown that when water is especially free from dust specks, it is of a darker and duller hue than when they are present in large quantities to capture and reflect the sunbeams. <laughs>